ranged quite far and wide. So I've tried to group uh, some of the related questions. Um, The first few. Dr. Campbell talks about invisible means of support. I feel this on some level frequently. If there is no loving God, what or who is this invisible support? Is there an equivalent or approximation of a soul in Buddhist teachings? Or is there reference to spirit? The 12-step programs place heavy reliance on God as we understand him. Please give some ways to understand this God. The teachings of the Buddha say he was enlightened by himself. AA and other 12-step programs say dependence on God is key to liberation from self. Please advise. (laughs) The God questions. I think there are quite a few different levels uh, to look at these questions. Um, What is this invisible means of support which some people could refer to as God or spirit or divine presence, which those particular terms are not found Uh, generally, in the Buddhist teachings. But there is a very important principle, which I think um, is somewhat equivalent or related. And that is the support, this invisible support, that really comes from the power and the force of our own paramis. Now, parami is a Pali word, and it means the accumulated force of certain perfections, certain qualities. For example, is the parami of dana, of generosity, the parami of morality, the parami of, of renunciation, the parami of wisdom. These are, these are certain factors in the mind which we are working to bring to perfection. Now these factors are actually forces which keep pushing us forward, which keep supporting us or upholding us or urging us forward. It's not particularly that it's coming from some being outside of ourselves. It's actually coming from our own accumulated purity, purification. I think that in the 12-step programs, for example, when it's said that we need to rely on a God outside of ourselves to actually find freedom, a Buddhist way of understanding that would not to necessarily be reliance on some being, but rather a reliance on these forces of wholesomeness, these forces of purity, which are outside the limited ego self. It is very hard, and perhaps impossible, to find freedom within that strong sense of ego, within that strong sense of identification. Our practice, the practice of Buddha Dhamma, is to begin to understand the reality, the underlying reality, which is beyond this ego self. So in that sense, it is a reliance on or a trust or a dropping into a more fundamental reality, not this small sense of I, this constricted sense of I. 
as the paramis become developed, and they become developed through practice and through practice over lifetimes, there is something which is called in Pali, Dhammoja. And that means um, something like the essence of Dhamma. And it's seen, it's both understood and experienced as an actual force. You know, and as our practice deepens and develops, we drop into the momentum of dhammas, of elements arising and passing away. When we drop, when we drop out of the conceptual realm and into this into this flow of, of energy. That dhammoja, that essence of the dhamma, we really experience as an onward leading force. And so in this sense, there is something greater than our usual understanding of ourselves. There's something greater than our limited sense of self. But it actually is within us. It's not, does not rely on the idea of some being outside of ourselves who is going to give us some help. It all comes from a purification of the forces within us. So that's one whole level, understanding this notion of paramis, the accumulated force of wholesome factors in the mind and the momentum that they start generating. There's another level, and in some sense a more superficial one, in the recognition that there are beings outside of ourselves, different devas and brahmas, and the Buddhist cosmology is very extensive, with 31 planes of existence, and each one of those planes divided into so many other planes. And so there are a lot of beings out there. And a lot of them are getting channeled in California. <laughs> sort of making their presence known. <laughs> And these beings, even in quite traditional Buddhist cultures and understandings, there is the acknowledgement that beings can have beneficent influences. You know, that there are devas and brahmins who actually work to protect and to guide and to help. That generally, these beings are drawn to us through the power of sila and the power of metta. And so that as our own sila, as our own morality is purified, and as our metta becomes stronger, it's as if we open ourselves, we open the channel of receiving, you know, whatever, however you like to, to, to call it, this positive energy or the, um, the beneficent help of these beings. But they can't do it for us. I mean, it's nice to have help. It's nice to be surrounded by good vibes. But it's really seen as quite secondary to the liberating force of this dhammoja, this essence of the dhamma, this force of the paramis within us that is leading us on, that's pushing us. And I think that one of the greatest helps for yogis you know, in, in our practice, is to reflect a little bit on our own paramis. You know, it's very extraordinary that we're here doing this. Most people in the world have not the slightest interest <laughs> or notion of purifying the mind. 
Now, the very notion of purifying the mind of greed or hatred or delusion, it never even occurs to most people. I mean, that's how strong the cloud of delusion is, of ignorance is. Not even seeing that there's a possibility for really coming out of suffering. And so for all of us, there's this, there's this vast reservoir of parame that has brought us here, that has created the motivation to do this quite intensive work. And so it's really a cause for, for a lot of self-respect you know, and a real joy to arise in the mind. Um, and often in the midst of practice, we forget that. You know, because we're seeing, we're seeing the stains and the defilements and the hindrances and the corruptions and the you know, 15 lists of unwholesome things. <laughs> and we really forget you know, just how powerful the paramis are in each one of us. And so that's a useful reflection. And that, that is really the invisible support that's holding us and carrying us. You have spoken about different kinds of fears the other night. Can you give advice about how to face or work with the fear of liberation? I don't think there actually is a fear of liberation. I think that there is a fear of some idea of liberation. You know, and we all have various notions of it. Dissolving in a great cloud of light or sound or cosmic flesh or disappearing or, I don't know, the many, many uh, images the mind might have of what liberation means. And we can create images for ourselves that frighten us. But if it's seen in the context, if we really look carefully at what liberation means, and we see that it really is letting go of suffering. Now, if is there fear of the prospect of being free of greed? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, greed's not so great. You know, or free of anger. I mean, the thought of being free of anger probably does not arouse fear. You know, or free of delusion. When we really see what liberation means, it means free of suffering. Free of those factors in the mind which torment us. And so when we understand liberation in this way, not as some kind of you know, magical or mysterious or some experience which is going to do something to us, but, but really in a very down-to-earth way of just purifying our minds, letting go of those things which are causing so much suffering in our lives. When we see it in that way, it really can become a tremendously inspiring vision. And it's, I think in that sense, it's not really the cause of fear to arise. It's like we're, we're holding on to a hot burning coal. You know, and we're really holding on. I think it's not so much a fear of letting go of it. It's really more a question of seeing how it is that we keep holding on. Why is it? What, what is it that makes us keep holding on to this suffering? And of course, a lot of our practice is seeing just that. Becoming aware of the different kinds of suffering that arises you know, in our minds and learning about it. Learning about how we get caught, how we get identified. And learning through observation, through seeing, not to any, not to any mystical technique just simple and direct observation over and over again until we understand. 
this is how anger is arising in the mind. This is how I'm getting caught. This is how I can let go. Or desire or whatever it may be. As I've mentioned, I think, a few times, when the Buddha was pressed to describe his teaching, the very bottom line of it, he said very simply and very directly, he teaches one thing and one thing only, teaches suffering and the end of suffering. How suffering is created and how to become free of it. Practice has gone to the place where there are long periods of being totally absorbed in the breath. There's just sensations and mindfulness. While playing Nintendo, one is also totally absorbed in the game. (coughs) Get lost in thought, and Mario gets killed by a fireball. (laughs) It's not passive, like watching TV. Since the Buddha never mentioned Nintendo, and there is no mention of enlightenment on the Nintendo box, there must be some reason why we all shouldn't go out and buy Nintendos. For those of you who don't know what this is, those few of you, it's a computer video thing. But at the moment, the difference between them escapes me. (laughs) Is there a difference? This is a serious question. (laughs) The words of the Buddha, in the seen there is only the seen, in the heard there is only the heard, etc., means there is only hearing or hearing and awareness of hearing. On the other hand, in my own experience, when I am watching a very interesting movie or listening to music that I really like, I am totally there. And although I'm not constantly being aware of it, I think that I am more present with the experience than when here I'm feeling the movements of my feet and being aware of them. Okay, these, these two are really the same question. What's the difference between the playing Nintendo and being really with it and not the need not to get lost in thought you know, or you get eaten up or the difference between really enjoying being absorbed in a good movie or listening to music? What's the difference between that and the kind of awareness and mindfulness we're trying to cultivate here? It's the difference between the workings of different mental factors. In the Nintendo game, where we really need to be right there, we lose. The factors that are working, or when we're in an absorbing movie or some some event like that, the concentration may be there, that steadiness and one-pointedness of mind, The perception is there. That is the recognition of what's happening. And in those instances, the perception is very strong. That is, we're in the story of it. We're in the content of it. And the concentration is keeping us right there. We're not necessarily wandering or getting lost. But the level that the mind is entering the experience is on the content story level. The factor that is so important in the development of the meditation practice and for the development of insight and wisdom is not particularly that conjunction of concentration and strong, very strong perception. It's the bringing into the moment the very strong factor of mindfulness. And what mindfulness does goes beyond the simple recognition of what's happening, and it goes beyond even the staying steady with what's happening. It plunges into the object so that we're able to see the three characteristics. And so when we're absorbed in a movie or absorbed in a Nintendo game, we're not particularly aware of the momentariness. We're not seeing the momentariness of phenomena. And we're not seeing the unsatisfying nature. We're not seeing the selfless nature. 
And so we may be very still and very present, but it's present on the level of perception rather than present on the level of mindfulness. And that's a critical difference. There's no way of coming to the insight of selflessness through the working of perception. Because perception is going to see a person, a man, a woman, a Nintendo figure. Perception is going to recognize those figures and stay right on that story level. Mindfulness is going to drop out of the story and watch the momentary arising of sensation, of thought, of sound. And this is a fundamental distinction. And so it's not to confuse either perception with mindfulness or concentration or the one-pointedness. Because it is possible to get very one-pointed, very concentrated in many areas of our life without being mindful, without actually seeing very directly these three characteristics. The equivalent of being mindful in that situation would be going to the movies and seeing the separate frames arising and passing away. It's quite different than how we usually go to the movies. It's actually a much better movie. (laughs) When we kind of let go of our fascination with the content, with the story, and drop into this level of momentary arising and passing. It's the sense, it's the, it's the really felt sense of being the Dhamma, not... not someone watching it, or somebody on the outside, or some thoughts about it. There's the experience of actually being this process of elements arising and passing continually, and it's tremendously compelling. You probably could not sit in a movie theater all day, every day, for three months. What is the advantage, if any, of labeling in mindfulness over the Zen practice of shikantaza, just observing without left-brain labeling? I really want to know. There were a few questions about left-brain and right-brain. I can never remember which side is supposed to do what. (laughs) And so... um, And I've never actually experienced my brain split in that way. But I suppose, I suppose it is. Uh, the labeling serves so many functions. They're all supportive. And so in that sense, there's no essential difference between a practice like shikantaza in, in Zen, which is just sitting, and being mindful moment to moment or sitting and labeling. Essentially, they're the same. The labeling is a support for that mindfulness, and it serves in many different ways. It serves to clarify the object um, so that the mind actually gets more accurate in its seeing. It's, as I've mentioned, it's like putting a frame around a picture. So we're just seeing clearly there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. And so instead of sliding through and being present, but without a clear recognition, uh, an accurate sense, you know, our, our mindfulness of what's there may, may be less accurate. So labeling helps in that respect. 
It helps to ensure that our relationship to the object is one of mindfulness rather than one of awareness with reaction. It's very easy, as I'm sure you've experienced. You're sitting and there's a strong pain in the body. It's very easy to be with the pain with a filter of aversion. Without the noting, we often don't realize the aversion is there. Because we're with the pain, we're making an effort to be with it, and this sense of aversion or dislike or impatience or wanting to get rid of it may be this very subtle overlay on the experience which we might not recognize. When we're labeling, the quality of the label, the quality of the tone of voice tells us a lot. You know, and so if you're sitting and you see, you notice the mind is going, prang, prang, you know, and there's a kind of gritted teeth tone to the note. It's, it's like doing gestalt therapy. It's, like, it's making it obvious. It's making obvious the actual state of mind. And so by adjusting the label, we actually change the relationship to it. And we learn to get into a very equanimous place, just moment after moment, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. And so it refines the quality of mindfulness. It, it helps us drop into that very particular kind of awareness, the, one, the awareness which is non-reactive. <coughs> There's another supportive mechanism from the labeling, and that is that it takes some effort to do it, which is why a lot of people find it difficult to do. Because it takes effort, it's really an antidote to tinamita, to that sloth and torpor in the mind, and it arouses energy. Because it takes effort, that very effort arouses energy. And so it keeps the practice developing and deepening in that way. What would be very helpful um, for those of you who have not you know, been, been working so much with the noting is just to take periods of time where you experiment with it as a tool, as a technique, and see how consistently you can do it. I'm going to pass on something Upandita said. Um, (laughs) I think there's a slight danger in it. So... Let the hearer beware. (laughs) But there's something very helpful in it. And as he was talking about this to some yogis, he said, yogis should become obsessed with noting. That was his... (laughs) Just become obsessed with it. (laughs) Note everything. Note, 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 (laughs) nibbana. I think it's worth trying. <laughs> the danger is, if it starts driving you crazy, <laughs> you might want to ease off a little bit. Uh, but it really is a very helpful tool. You know, it really works to keep, the, to keep the mind energized, to keep it accurate, to keep it mindful. And it can be done quite continuously. Rising, falling, thinking, thinking, pain, pain, rising, falling. Just moment after moment, and not only in the sitting. As you're standing up, to note moments of seeing, moments of hearing, to be noting each arising object. There's an art to it, there's no doubt about it. Sometimes people do it too loudly, sometimes people get too tight with it. And so it's to understand all that. And that's why I said, 
You know, there is a danger in that advice. But there's also something of value. And so if you can play with it in a skillful way, even if it's for certain periods of time where you're experimenting with being obsessed with noting, you know, where you really make that a great, great determination, just as an experiment for yourself. So you begin to play with this particular tool of practice. Again, the essence of the practice is the mindfulness. And so it's important to understand that that's really what it's about. And so when the mindfulness is very strong and very quick, the noting falls away. It's just a tool. It's just a technique. But it's worth playing with it, especially now. You've been here you know, over a month, uh, and you're all, in that respect, quite experienced you know, with the practice, with your minds, with what you can do. Play, you know, in that way. I think you'll find it, you'll find it interesting. The suffering caused by aversion to objects is easily apparent to me as is the need for mindfulness upon aversion. I don't as fully appreciate the suffering caused by reaching for pleasurable objects. For example, Ajahn Chah's prescription to see the emptiness of pleasurable phenomena. I find myself quite drawn to and intrigued by a particular person. It always leads to grasping and clinging. Although I try to note VRSO, which stands for Vipassana Romance Soap Opera. (laughs) It keeps coming back with intense frequency. Are there any skillful means to not get washed away by this one? Reaching for pleasurable objects. Buddha had a very nice uh, sort of statement about this. He said that he sees and understands the satisfaction of sense pleasures. He sees and understands the dangers or dissatisfaction of sense pleasures. And he understands the freedom from sense pleasures. And I like it because it's like an acknowledgement of the whole story. It's not a limited perspective. There is a certain satisfaction in sense pleasures. Now when we when we experience something that's pleasant, that's agreeable, it's a nice feeling. And it brings a certain kind of happiness, it brings a certain kind of joy. And that is real, and that's true. But most of us stop there. We see that part pretty well. The Buddha goes on to say, well, he also sees the danger of sense pleasure, the unsatisfying quality. What is that? Now, why are they unsatisfying? Why are they dangerous in some way? I think it very much has to do with our understanding of what actually brings any kind of lasting happiness. You know, the pleasures that we get through different sense objects, whether it's of a passing romance or pleasant sensations in the body or nice feelings, whatever they may be, the momentary pleasantness is there, that's true. But as we all know so very well, and this is not theoretical knowledge, we all really know it, it's nice for a while, it's pleasant for a while, and then it's gone. And there's really 
really nothing of lasting value there. Now, how many? We've, we've, just, we've experienced so many pleasant moments, so many pleasant experiences. Now, countless, countless ones in our lives. And they're nice. <laughs> but so what? You know, what really has it done for us? What really has it given to us? Has it brought us a really deep peace? Has it brought us a really deep happiness? I mean, it hasn't, and we know it, and that's why we're here. Otherwise, we'd be out searching for for yet another pleasure. Because we know we've, we've gone through it so many times. And so I think what the Buddha is saying is that there is a certain satisfaction, a certain pleasure... But for people who don't see their basically empty, unsatisfying quality to them, those people are caught, are trapped in this treadmill of constantly reaching after another one. If that's where it's believed happiness lies, we just keep going after them again and again and again and are always, are always inevitably disappointed in the sense that they're not lasting, there's nothing substantial there. They don't give us what they promise. And so the danger of them is their seduction, is their ability to make us believe that yeah, if we get one more, that will really do it for us. You know, and we see that a lot of the world operates on that principle. And it's that seduction, that attachment to sense pleasures you know, of, of various kinds that prevents people from really going deeper and, and finding, discovering in themselves a much truer place of happiness. And that's their danger. Another danger, which we see happen very often in the world and in our own lives at different times, is that we can become so attached to a sense pleasure that we actually do different kinds of unskillful, of harmful actions in order to enjoy it. Now, actions which harm us, which harm others. And so the danger there is we're going after this pleasure and actually planting the seeds of our own suffering through the unskillful action. So it's in both these ways. The Buddha went on to say he saw the freedom from it. And this is, this is really the wonderful taste we can have in practice where we're not pulling away from pleasant things. Just in our practice, we're opening up, being mindful. It's pleasant, fine. It's unpleasant, fine. We come to know very deeply the nature of pleasant feeling. Yes, it's like this and it's impermanent. This unpleasant feeling, it's like this, and it's impermanent. Through our practice, we come to a very clear understanding of the possibility of freedom from attachment to these pleasures. It's not that we don't have them, because we're living in a world of sense objects. So throughout our lives, pleasant things are going to come, unpleasant things are going to come, but how are we understanding them? How are we, how are we relating? And so with reference to the question of the Vipassana romance that keeps coming, I think a, an important question that has to be asked is, How to say this? Do I really see? Do I really understand? Am I looking deeply at the unsatisfying nature of it? You know, because I've seen in my own mind this, like part of our minds can want to be mindful and can kind of know that this particular fantasy doesn't lead anyplace because we've had it. You know, 10,000 times already. And so we know that. But there's still the part of the mind 
which is, well, let me enjoy it one more time. <laughs> you know, and, and so we really have to be honest with ourselves and, and call up, really call up the wisdom that we have. I think of His Holiness Karmapa. Some, in one of his teachings, he, he said, something like, we have to do what we know. You know. We know this, but it's not enough to know it, that we actually have to do it. And so in the time when we're seeing the mind reaching out for another run-through, this particular, this particular little film, that's the place to call up some discriminating wisdom. Now, in the Tibetan iconography, Manjushri, who's the bodhisattva of wisdom, uh, he's depicted as carrying a sword. Uh, and it's the sword of discriminating wisdom. And so it's not, it's not just to be victimized by our own habits of mind. When we see this again and again and again, no, oh, okay, he's... he's Vipassana Roman soap opera again. Let, let the arising of that activate a strong interest, activate this sort of discriminating wisdom. You know, it's the reflection, this is not going anyplace. It may be a pleasant few minutes you know, of, of running through that film. And so it's really... It's really uh, connecting with the place of wisdom in ourselves. That's tremendously empowering in our practice. You know, it's, not, it's not only waiting for it to develop in its own time, which it will. We can also uh, come to that place of strength in ourselves. And it takes practice. It's not that we're going to be successful every time. But it's to reflect wisely, to reflect on the nature of pleasant objects, pleasant experiences, because we've all had lots of experience with it. And that kind of reflection tremendously strengthens the wisdom factor within us. Please talk about jealousy and the comparing mind. They seem to be both desire and aversion at once. How did you work with jealousy in your practice? Could you talk about conceit? What is so strongly conditioned? Why, what is it so strongly conditioned and stays until the fourth stage of enlightenment? Jealousy and conceit. I think there are a few elements of working with this that are difficult and quite essential. Because jealousy can be a consuming state of mind, a consuming fire. You know, it's a state of particular suffering when jealousy is very strong. The starting place for it and a place that many people don't start is being able to see it and recognize it and feel it without condemning it, without a judgment about it. Because if there's a strong condemning or judgment, it actually is feeding it. How does it feed it? It's very interesting. Jealousy is a really interesting mind state. Because when it's strong in the mind, it's basically being fed by a feeling of, some kind of feeling of unworthiness or not good enough. If as we're experiencing the jealousy, 
we are then condemning it and condemning ourselves from having it, we're simply strengthening that feeling of not being good enough, of how bad I am. And so we get, we get tied up in this knot and it gets very, very difficult to come out of it. And so the first step is really getting okay with the fact that it's arising, just making some space. Okay, this is what's here. A basic place of just acceptance, not struggle. From that place, we can then apply some very, some very strong forces in the mind of interest and investigation. If we're not condemning ourselves or condemning the state, if we're not judging it, it's as if we're asking ourselves the question, okay, what is this? What is the nature of this emotion? And so we're looking at it beyond the content. We're not getting lost in the content level, but it's an interest in what is the quality of this energy in the heart and mind. That interest is very different than either being lost and identified with it or condemning it. If it feels like it still goes on and one is really locked into it for long periods of time, it may be necessary to drop to the level of being mindful of the underlying feeling which is fueling it, which is the feeling or might be the feeling of unworthiness or, or the absence of, of metta for oneself. And if that's not acknowledged, if that's not seen, if we're not mindful of it, so then that feeling keeps fueling the jealousy. And so it's quite workable, although it's a very fiery state. And so it takes a lot of spaciousness and a lot of acceptance around it in order to begin to touch it, in order to begin to understand, in order to begin to get underneath it. The, the quality of conceit which in the Buddhist terminology refers to any solidification of a comparing self, either as better than somebody or worse than somebody or equal to somebody. Again, it, it's all, <laughs> it all gets so interesting just to see how it's working. This conceit comes because the perception quality in the mind is very strong. There's a hallucination of perception of the sense of self. The antidote to conceit is actually focusing on the momentariness of phenomena. You know, and so when the mind is caught in some comparison, what's happening is that at that time, we're caught in a perception of oneself and somebody else. We're caught in that concept, in that framework of self and other. And we make whatever comparison we're making because we're not seeing how the very thought is not, we're not seeing that the very thought is arising and passing away. And so if we can remember the antidote to conceit is the understanding of the mindfulness of impermanence and come back again to the momentariness of phenomena, we see that comparing mind disappears immediately. An analogy to this, it's an analogy in some way, although the the content of the thought is a little different, but something you may relate to. Now, often in the course of a retreat, different thoughts come about the time, 
the time that we've been here, the time that's left. You know, we can we can have a thought, oh, there's you know a month and a half left, or and I'm sure you know how many hours are left, but <laughs> <laughs> however many they are. <laughs> and the thought can the thought can condition a lot of different feelings. It can condition depression. You know, it can condition enthusiasm, it can whatever. But all of those conditioned feelings are coming from getting caught in the content of that thought. As soon as we're able to see that the thought, oh, there are these many days left, and we see it just as a thought arising and passing, when we see the, the momentariness of the thought, it has no effect on the mind. It doesn't condition anything further because it just comes and goes and we're not caught in it. It's the same way with the comparing mind. We get caught in the content because we're not seeing the impermanence of the thought itself. And so it's just dropping right back to a very mindful, um, strong experience of mindfulness at that time. The practice seems to produce people who are clear and open. However, however, they also seem quite cool, not exactly overflowing with warmth. <laughs> it doesn't seem like anything is special. Doesn't this seem like a lack of some kind? Can you comment on a teaching that emphasizes dispassion and whether it is compatible with human warmth and development of intimate relationships? Could you talk about what seems like the oftentimes insufferable solidity and static nature of personality in relating to others, in relation to everything else in which the arising and passing nature seem much more obvious? The idea popped in my awareness today The past memories and emotional states were of no value to experiencing the present moment. Strong fear arose. Letting go of the conditioned self would mean losing the justification for the vast majority of my subjective views. I might have to rework my entire life. At 47 years, it seems too, too much work. All of these are somewhat related. Um, And it really has to do with understanding the role of personality in this process. In my experience both with my teachers and with so many yogis who are practicing, just thousands and thousands, there is no one dhamma type. You know, there is just this vast range of personality types. Um, Some are very cool, some are very passionate, some are everything. It's just everything is there. And so I don't think particularly that the practice makes our personality a certain way. I think we're pretty much stuck with our personality. Rather, we start relating to personality stuff in a different way. So instead of being so tightly bound up in it, so tightly identified with it, it's as if the personality conditioning, you know, and, and so that that conditioning is happening in a much more spacious field, so that there's it's not taking the particular the particular personality forms as being self, as being I. They still play themselves out. 
one of the things that, that often happens say it feels like there is a refinement or an attunement to the more subtle aspects of our energy as it's manifesting on all levels as it's manifesting through personality through emotion through our bodies and you can feel it you can feel it you know, just in your own practice and being here that we become more aware and more sensitive to much more subtle aspects than when our minds are scattered and distracted and very outward. We really begin to feel things in a much fuller way. And so there's a kind of there's a kind of passion in dispassion. Because dispassion in this sense doesn't mean no emotion. It means that we're not so identified. We don't create this strong sense of self or I in the emotions, in the thoughts, in the sensations of the body. And so they're all still happening, but they're happening in a much vaster field. It's not so constricted, not so contracted. And because of that, because of that spaciousness, we actually drop to more and more refined levels, which is very vibrant. It's not... The experience of practice and and this increased refinement is not at all a flattening. That's that's not at all what happens. It's, It's like... You know, there's, there's an increased vibrancy to this flow of energy. And it's going to, it's going to manifest in a very wide range of personality. You'll see it very clearly during Integration Week. You know, you'll see the range. Okay, I have one last question which I'm going to read but actually not give an answer to. Do you think the reason why the Buddha is depicted with such long earlobes on all the statues is that he pulled them so much when he was <laughs> sleeping? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> more as as you know from previous times it's hard to get through all of them I'd like to make a few announcements I've been getting various notes over the last week about different aspects of yogi etiquette Uh, and so these are some things that are just reminders in terms of um, being here and relating to one another Uh, As I mentioned in the hall uh, yesterday morning, <laughs> uh, this place is getting very charged. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like when you're in the process, like Suzuki Roshi used a, a beautiful example. He said, you know, as you're walking through a mist, you don't even realize you're getting wet. Because it's not like a downpour, but you stay in the mist, and after some time you're really thoroughly drenched. You've been walking in the mist now for weeks, and there's a lot of energy going on, a lot of sensitivity, and a lot of openness. You know, and it's very obvious in the interviews. You know, as you come in, there's, there's a wonderful intensity. It's like there's a tremendous clarity and connection with whatever your experience happens to be. And there's all the ups and downs of practice, but there's an aliveness to it 
It's very, very obvious, although it may not be obvious to you. And so really a lot of sensitivity is needed. There's 120 people in this building, you know, and a lot of delicacy is needed. So these are just a few of the things that you know, will help. One is that if somebody should fall asleep in the hall and is snoring, who's ever sitting next to them should just please wake them. And if you are the one who's being awakened, you can assume that that's the reason. <laughs> but it really would be a great service to everybody else. You know, just, just to gent... And wake them gently. <laughs> uh, it's not uncommon. You know, as I'm sure all of you know at different times, so the sleepiness can be overpowering. So it's just... You know, gently nudge the person. For the practice leaders, quite a number of people wrote saying that uh, they often can't hear the bell at the end of the sitting. And so don't be afraid to you know, give it a, a firm ring. This is quite a nice bell, and I think Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.